And this morning we come to Matthew 27, and we'll be looking especially at verses 45 through verse 50. So Matthew 27, beginning at verse 45, listen now to the reading of God's holy word. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Seek the Lord's blessing on this His holy word. O Lord God in heaven, we rejoice and give thanks, Father, that You have given us the truth of Your word, and that it is in our own language and tongue that we can read it and that we can understand it through the power of the Holy Spirit. And as we come to this particular passage, we do pray that You would give us understanding and insight to see all that our Savior endured for us, And that as your word goes forth, we pray that it would find within our hearts that rich, fertile soil that will truly bring about a great and abundant fruit for your glory. And so we ask now for your blessing upon your word. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. This past week, we were reminded once again of the reality of the horror that living in a fallen and sinful world surrounded by fallen and sinful humanity can provoke. As a deranged young man murdered 21 people, most of them children. We weep and we mourn with the survivors in Uvalde, even as we've done with other sinful acts of violence that have been perpetrated in the past by those whose hearts are so darkened by sin that they have no regard for human life and those who are created in the image of God. And we pray that God, who is light, will shatter the darkness of sorrow and grief that covers those who mourn and that He would bring to them true comfort through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're reminded of the horrors of evil as we're reminded of these horrors of of evil that are present in this world. We also pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus, and deliver us from sin and death once and for all. Well, during these dark times, we can be tempted to wonder whether God has, has left us, whether He's given up on this world because of the increasing sinfulness and, and the rebellion against His law that we see all around us. And the tragic events such as happened last week can cause such great anguish and suffering that we may think that God has truly abandoned us. And sadly, many will fall prey to that temptation 
for those whose hope and trust is in the Lord Jesus Christ and in the promises of His Word, we know that even though we sense or feel that God is distant, we know that He's not. For if we're truly in Him, we confess and cling to the truth that God has promised that He will never leave us nor forsake us. He will never leave us to suffer alone. Because on the darkest day known to mankind, Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, was forsaken. He was forsaken so that He might suffer alone in our place, enduring what we deserved because of our sin, even the just wrath and curse of God in place of the Heavenly Father's goodness and comforting presence. But in God's purpose and predetermined plan, this great day of darkness will become for us who believe the day that the gospel breaks forth in glorious light, securing for us the victory over sin, death, and darkness. But before that light and victory, there was darkness. A very real and literal darkness over all the land. As Matthew describes here in verse 45, that now from the sixth hour unto the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. Now by this point, Jesus had been on the cross anywhere between one to three hours. Remember that the Sanhedrin had their their meeting to sentence Jesus just after daybreak, so just after 6 a.m., And then between 6 a.m. and 9 a.m., Jesus appeared before Pilate. He was rejected by the people, and he was mocked and abused by the Roman soldiers. And Mark, in his gospel account, Mark 15, tells us that it was about the third hour, so about 9 a.m., when Jesus was nailed to the cross. Now, these times aren't exact, but, but they're simply general references. And so, again, between one to three hours... Jesus has been hanging on the cross and enduring the insults and the abuse of those standing by, not to mention the intense pain and suffering of being nailed to a cross. But suddenly, something dramatic happens at the sixth hour. That is at noon, right in the middle of the day, a heavy darkness came over all the land and lasted until three o'clock in the afternoon. Now, there have been many attempts to explain this sudden uh, darkness, but the reality, really the, the only explanation that really makes any sense here is that this was a supernatural event, a miracle that occurred while Jesus hung on the cross. Now, Matthew, along with Mark and Luke, simply record that this darkness covered over all the land. And so we may first wonder, well, how extensive was it? Well, it's likely that this was localized to maybe just Jerusalem or Judea or maybe even all of Israel. In the same way that, remember the ninth plague in Egypt, when God brought darkness upon all the land of Egypt, except for the land of Goshen, where the Israelites were living. Indeed, as we'll see, the darkness served much the same purpose as what fell upon the Egyptians. But regardless of how extensive the darkness was, it was quite impressive that at noon, right, when the sun is is at its height in the sky and it's at its promise, when it's at its brightest, darkness came over the land 
and lasted for three long hours. Now some claim that this maybe was a result of a sandstorm. But such storms, though certainly not unheard of in the area, uh, wouldn't have been worthy of mention. And even if it was notable, it wouldn't have lasted for three hours or covered over such a large area. And others claim it was possibly a solar eclipse. But remember that this was the time of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, a time marked by the full moon. And it's impossible to have a solar eclipse during a full moon. And even if it were possible, an eclipse wouldn't have lasted for three long hours. And so truly, the only explanation is that this was a great miracle brought about by God. And it's interesting to note here that the scoffers, and especially the the religious leaders of the time, they were always asking Jesus, remember they were always asking to show us a sign that we might believe. And yet here's a dramatic sign that's given. And they pay no attention to it. And they only continue to harden their hearts. And so this darkness was clearly a sign. But for what? Well, as we already alluded, the darkness was a clear sign of judgment. A judgment that the curse of God had come upon the land, even as it had during the time of Moses in the land of Egypt. Remember, the ninth plague was a plague of darkness. A darkness that was, uh, only fell upon the areas where the Egyptians lived, and of course, where the Israelites lived, there was still light. And so that was a great miracle in itself. Well, this darkness was so great that we read the accounts there in Exodus that it could be felt. And you couldn't even see your hand if you put your hand in front of your face. Indeed, throughout the Old Testament, and even in the New Testament, darkness is a sign of impending judgment and doom. And we've already mentioned uh, the plague in Egypt, which was a judgment against Egypt. But the prophet Zephaniah speaks of, of coming judgment when he declares that the, that day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Remember, Jesus used the same imagery of darkness to describe the judgment to come when he returns at the end of the age. Matthew 24, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And so darkness is a sign of judgment. But what does it mean here? What was this sudden, long-lasting darkness a sign of judgment for, as, as Jesus is here hanging on the cross? Well, there are two things. First, it's a sign to the Jews who've rejected Jesus. It's a judgment upon them for their unbelief and putting to death the Son of God, even their Messiah. The full judgment, of course, would come upon them in 70 AD when Jerusalem and and the temple would be destroyed by the Romans. But now this sign of judgment falls upon them, demonstrating the darkness that now shrouded their hearts because of their unbelief. They were blind to the light of the sun, even the Son of Righteousness, the Lord Jesus Christ. In this connection, we find the fulfillment of Amos, the prophet Amos, chapter 8, verses 9 and 10. 
And there we read this, And it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning, and all your songs into lamentation. I'll bring sackcloth on every waist, and boldness on every head. I will make it like mourning for an only son, and its end like a bitter day. And there we see not just the darkness, but even the, the time of feasting becoming morning, right? This is the, the Passover festival, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was a time of great celebration, but now it's a time of mourning. A time of mourning so great as one would grieve for an only son. Now, if the people would have remembered this passage in connection with the claims that Jesus had made about himself, as they're now witnessing this great darkness come upon the, the land, if they would have humbled themselves and made that connection, they may have turned and repented of their sin, and they may have looked upon him whom they have pierced, believing that he had truly come to save them from their sins. But they made no such connection. They only further hardened their hearts. And so this sign of judgment would lead to a greater and more severe judgment to come. As we mentioned, that would come in 70 AD. But not only is this darkness a judgment and curse upon the unbelieving Jews, but it's especially a sign of the judgment and curse of God that falls upon Jesus for the sins of the world, even for our sins. For it was during this time of darkness that Jesus most especially bore our sins. As we read Isaiah 53, And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. So the, our iniquity, our sin, is being laid upon Christ. And because of that, this darkness has come as a curse and as a judgment because of that sin. It was at this time of darkness when our redemption was secured as Christ Himself, the Son of God, became a curse for us. Paul says in Galatians 3, Christ has redeemed us as from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Christ became cursed for us. It was during this time of darkness that Jesus endured God's wrath and curse so that we, the undeserving sinners we are, so that we might have life. Again, Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 says, For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And so it was during this darkness that the curse of God was, and the wrath of God was being poured out upon Jesus Christ because of our sins. For three hours, the darkness had fallen upon Jesus and upon the whole land as a judgment of God's wrath for our sin. And then the intensity of Christ's sorrow and suffering reaches a height in the midst of this darkness as He cries out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now this is a, 
uh, a direct quote, at least the, f- the first part, is a direct quote from Psalm 22, uh, verse 1, which we'll be singing later. <clears throat> and Matthew gives the, the Hebrew and Aramaic, and then he, he translates the phrase for his readers. So that there's no question about what Jesus is saying here. Now, this isn't a main point, but it's certainly an important side note. That there's great instruction here for the times that we may feel alone and and suffer a a dark day, even the darkness of tragedy and violence and pain and anguish and grief. That here Jesus is, is being humiliated as he suffers greatly with excruciating pain there hanging on the cross after already enduring so much physical, emotional, and, and spiritual affliction. And what does he do? Does he swear? Does he cry out cursing God? Or does he curse those who have crucified him? No. He remembers what was written of him in God's word long ago through David. And this should be a great example to us for our own encouragement and comfort during such times of suffering and affliction. For Jesus, even as he did during his temptation by Satan in the wilderness, even now while hanging on the cross, he finds great solace and comfort in the word of God. Indeed, in what is quite literally the darkest hours of his life, he calls to remembrance the Word of God. Again, what a a great example for us to to also do likewise, and and certainly to, to turn to God's Word, to look to His promises, to see how He speaks to us in the midst of great grief and sorrow and suffering. And indeed, what a great privilege it is that we have to to even be able to sing God's Word, to sing the Psalms, which really speak to uh, every human experience from, from joy and sadness and sorrow. It covers everything, reminding us of God's presence and comfort for us at all times, whether it's good or whether it's bad. And so there's great encouragement for us here. But as we consider the words of what Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We're faced with an important question. Did God actually forsake Jesus, His own Son? How could God forsake God? Well, we know because God is God, He He can't despise Himself, right? It would be impossible for God the Father to stop loving Jesus, the Son. God can't deny Himself. And clearly we see here that Jesus the Son, He didn't reject God as He lays claim to God as His God. right? The very words, my God, my God, it's showing ownership. This isn't a a mild swear or taking the Lord's name in vain as we we might hear people exclaim today. It's an emphatic clinging to the relationship that God has promised. I will be your God and you will be my people. And Jesus lays claim to that promise that God is His God. And so certainly He's not cursing God here. And in turn, God isn't rejecting Himself. That is, He's not rejecting the person of the Son in the divine nature. 
Now at this time, Jesus, in his humanity, is experiencing the departure of the good and comforting presence of the Lord. Not because of his sin, but because of our sin. Even as we may experience when we live with unconfessed sin. And right in those times when when we're when we're living in sin, when we haven't confessed our sin, when our hearts are have have hardened a bit, and we're just pressing on in our sin. And we sense that the goodness and the presence of God is no longer with us. But you know what? He hasn't left us if we're truly in Him. But truly our sin drives a wedge between us and God so that we don't sense His presence. And so that's, in a sense, what Jesus is here experiencing. But it's our sin that's separating Jesus from the presence, the good and comforting presence of God. And so Jesus in His humanity, again, He never stopped being God. But in His humanity, He was overwhelmed with the sin of the world. And because of that, He alone, and He uh, he is alone, and He's isolated. He's forsaken by God because He now bears the sin of the world on His shoulders. And God can't look upon such an unholy sight. Indeed, we see this in Habakkuk declares in Habakkuk 1 verse 13, Your eyes are too pure to behold evil, and you cannot look on wrongdoing. And so Jesus, sensing the great abandonment and the weight of our transgressions upon Him, He cries out, but there's no response. His cry is only answered with silence. And heavy darkness. And it's here that we consider these words that Jesus cries out from the cross in the context of when David first spoke them in Psalm 22. Because it gives us a prophetic glimpse of the very heart and the mind of Jesus as he's there hanging on the cross. Right? As he quotes this psalm, he's revealing what's going on inside him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning, Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, and I'm not silent. We see here that the cry and the darkness are are intimately tied together. The darkness symbolizes in a very real way what Jesus is experiencing on the cross and expresses in His cry. And we confess that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. And that if God would withdraw Himself, well then there's no longer any light, only darkness. Deep and heavy darkness. And Jesus senses this withdrawal in His soul and in His mind. But he can also see it. And he can feel it with the darkness that surrounds him and all the land. Now ponder this for a moment. When agonizing grief and suffering comes, and maybe in response to some, some uh, agonizing tragedy and experience, it can be crushing. 
You experience loss in your life. That can be crushing, especially for those who don't know Christ. Whether it's in the loss of a loved one, or even in the horrific tragedy of last week in Ovalde. There are people, families that are grieving who likely have nothing to cling to, who have no hope, who have no comfort. Indeed, such suffering and grief is difficult even for those of us who do trust in Christ. But you see, at least we can turn to Him and His Word for strength and and be comforted by His promises. But for those who don't know Him, they're truly alone in their suffering. And so in this, they actually have something in common with Jesus. Suffering deep grief and anguish and intense pain in the midst of dark loneliness. But even in this, even in this complex, difficult situation, we know that Jesus didn't lose hope. He quotes from Psalm 22, the very first verse. Obviously, the whole psalm would have been on his heart and mind, which so the whole psalm would speak so prophetically of him, the righteous sufferer. And we've already, over the last several weeks, we've, we've referenced and we've sung various portions of Psalm 22 because it, there's so much of it that is being fulfilled in these last hours of Jesus' life. And that even it's the words that he has when he's there on the cross. So this psalm obviously was on his heart and in his mind. In Psalm 22, beginning at verse 3, he acknowledges, But you, God, you are holy, enthroned in the praise of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let Him rescue Him. Let Him deliver Him since He delights in Him. Doesn't that sound exactly like what they were saying? But you, Lord God, you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breast. I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. So we see here that Jesus is still trusting, acknowledging God's plan and purpose for him. And that even this suffering was a part of of that plan and purpose. And so he's there, lonely, poor and needy. He's suffering greatly. But he also remembers the Father's great love and care for him. That even when it seems there is no other helper to come, Jesus continues to trust in His Father, perfect and wonderful plan that would soon glorify the Son and would secure the salvation of His people.
even we ourselves. Now those standing by, they should have known the context and the reference of Psalm 22, especially the religious leaders. But they were either totally ignorant of the connection, or perhaps they understood it, but then just used it as another opportunity to mock Jesus. Verse 47, this man is calling for Elijah. Now granted, the Hebrew word for God, Eloi or Eli, and the name Elijah, Eliah, they're very similar and very close. And it was true that a common belief at the time was that Elijah would return at a time of crisis to protect and rescue the righteous. And so their reasoning is this, if he truly is righteous, then he will be rescued, that Elijah will come. But would that rescue or deliverance ever come? It would have been about this time as well that Jesus would have cried out from the cross, as Luke records, I thirst. And in response then, we see in verse 48, immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink. And so it's quite possible that, that one of the soldiers offered this drink to Jesus, quite possibly, and many speculate that it might have been the centurion who later confesses Christ, as we'll see Lord willing next week, that maybe he directs one of the soldiers to demonstrate this kindness as he's been impressed by what he's been witnessing. But even to this small kindness, there arose a protest. Verse 49, the rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. Don't interfere. Right? They wanted to wait and, and see if Elijah would come. And so, so they were looking for this great spectacle. Perhaps this would be the moment of truth, right? If Jesus was truly who he claimed to be, well, this is going to. This is where it's going to be revealed. So they all stand and they watch with great anticipation, kind of like watching a big spectacle, waiting to see if Jesus would be saved by Elijah. They certainly don't want to miss this once-in-a-lifetime sign that they could tell their children and their children's children. And they wait. Will Elijah come to save him? Don't interfere. Don't, don't do anything to disrupt this. Get out of the way. They wait, but nothing happens. Indeed, if they would have remembered the words of Psalm 22, it makes clear, no other helper would appear. Jesus would remain on the cross. And so their hearts then only grew harder. But then something did happen. Not in a great spectacular way, with Elijah appearing to save Jesus. But suddenly, in verse 50, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice so that all could hear. And he yielded up his spirit. It's likely that this time Jesus spoke those words that we find in In John's Gospel, it is finished. It is finished. With one last gasping cry, he breathed his last. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was now dead on the cross. But note carefully how Matthew records this climactic event. Jesus didn't die of 
physical exhaustion. If he was physically exhausted at this point, there's no way he would have been able to even cry out at all. But note how Matthew says, he yielded up his spirit. That is, Jesus yielded, he permitted his spirit to depart his body. He let it go. Voluntarily giving up his life for us. This confirms what he had told the disciples before. What he would do as the good shepherd. In John 10 he said, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. No one took it from him. But Jesus willingly laid down his life for us. So that our redemption could be accomplished. Jesus Christ has fulfilled and accomplished what his father had called him to do. He knew it would be humiliating. He knew it would be difficult. He knew it would be filled with intense pain and suffering. But just as he prayed in Gethsemane, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus Christ has accomplished the will of the Father by willingly laying down his life for undeserving sinners. And by doing so, he has redeemed to himself a covenant people. He has paid the penalty for their sins. And the cords of death that have now surrounded him, we know will not hold him, as we'll see, Lord willing, in a couple weeks. Beloved of God, I want to tell you this morning that once upon a dark forsaken day, indeed the darkest day in all of human history, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, (coughs) died on the cross for your sins. He became cursed for you. Remember, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Christ hung on the tree of the cross so that you wouldn't have to. And He who knew no sin, He was perfectly righteous, He perfectly kept the law of God. He who knew no sin became sin for us, for your sin. That you might even now today stand and be the righteousness of God in Him. He suffered under the wrath and curse of God, forsaken of the Father, so that we might by faith be enabled to cling to that promise that He will never leave us nor forsake us. Even as Jesus will promise when He gives that great commission, I will be with you always. He will never leave us. Brothers and sisters, this is no fairy tale. But truly I say to you, that those who have turned and repented from their sin and, and who trust in Christ alone for salvation, they will live with Him by their side in this life. Right? Jesus will always be with us, no matter what it is we're going through in this life. Even in the midst of a tragedy and, and suffering and great affliction, Jesus will never, ever leave us. His Spirit is always with us. Because He was forsaken on that day. And not only will He be with us in this life, 
but we shall also always be with him in the life to come, living, as it were, happily ever after in the glory to come. This is what Christ secured for us. He was forsaken so that we might never be forsaken, so that we might never, ever be alone, not in this life, not through death, and certainly not after death. And it's all to the glory of God alone. Let's pray. Gracious God in heaven, we praise you and thank you for, for what you have done for us acknowledging our own sinfulness, our own unworthiness, and yet by your bounding grace and mercy and and everlasting love that we can't even begin to comprehend, Jesus died for us. And He was forsaken because of our sin. That your good and comforting presence turned away from your own Son, And that you poured out upon him your holy wrath and curse. All that we deserved, Christ endured. So that we might never, ever be alone. And so we just praise you and thank you for this great comfort. And and even as we're again, we've been reminded of living in this dark and sinful world, surrounding by sinners, even struggling with sin ourselves. You never leave us. You never forsake us. No matter what happens, you are always with us. And we praise you and thank you for that, for that great comfort. And that you would truly impress this truth upon us, drawing us all closer to yourself. That we would truly call upon your name in faith, walk in truth, and boldly go forth to proclaim this comforting gospel to a world that truly is grieving and suffering under the burden of sin. We pray for these things. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen.